How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. Each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, Constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may, with one voice and heart and soul, sing thy, thy redeeming grace. This is the words of the song that we have heard during the offertory time. Thank you, Kim, and thank you, Pam, for leading us in our time of, of singing and worship. This week, as I was reading an ad, I, I read the following ad about a food commercial. And you'll, you'll realize why I read the words of the song of the offertory for us this morning. The commercial I read this week said the following. The following healthy power foods can claim big bragging rights. They can fend off serious diseases like diabetes, cancer, and heart disease. They fortify your immune system, and they protect and smooth your skin and help you lose weight or stay slim. All of this was promised if you would only eat 25 of their healthy food options. Well, today I would like for us to see Jesus is teaching about himself and about our response to him. And both of these are given through the lens of eating, of food. Now, we should have little trouble in appreciating the reference to food. We love food, even when it's junk. Actually, I've been wondering this week, why is it that junk food tastes better than healthy food? Have you ever wondered that? Yet we live in a time when more and more people are seeking to eat healthy. They say that it will help them live better or live longer. Do you believe that? I want you and I to talk about, I want to talk to you today, and I want you and I to meditate today about your diet. But about a diet that Scripture talks about. It's not about food that keeps you healthy. Actually, I want us to talk today about the feeding that gives life. Would you open Scripture to John chapter 6? We are currently in our series of sermons on the Gospel of John. Last week we were in chapter 5. Today we will be in chapter 6. 
It is a long chapter, probably one of the longest, actually, about 71 verses. And we'll be reading through it all. I hope you find your scripture to John chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts this morning. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples came, went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three, uh, three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, 
not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you do to give us that we may see and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at that last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can, can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus replied. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews 
began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware of this, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one come, can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Him and Judas, the son of Simon, is carried, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts and for our souls. Let's ask him to feed our souls through these living words that we have just heard. Would you bow me and let's join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that your words have eternal life in them. O oh Lord, we pray that these words will be food for our hearts, food for our minds. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, at the beginning of the series on John, I pointed out briefly how many differences there are between the fourth gospel and the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They differ so much from John's gospel, very little is included between them that overlap. Well, the story of the miracle of feeding 5,000 people is the one and only miracle that overlaps with the other three Gospels. 
It's a significant miracle. Jesus is, is feeding 5,000 people, and John is using this experiment or this miracle as an occasion to give us, to reveal to us the identity of Jesus. It is, on, it is on this occasion that Jesus reveals the first of the famous seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. It is here that Jesus says the first I am statement, I am the bread of life. Now, what does it mean for us to say Jesus is the bread of life? What does it mean for you? Honestly, is this just a church language that is empty of meaning like so many other church languages? It sounds good, but does it really have much meaning or relevance for us today? Well, this passage that we just read points out that the meaning of this phrase, Jesus is the bread of life that came down from heaven, it was the meaning of this phrase that caused many of Jesus' followers to grumble and even to desert him. This morning, we must seek to understand what did Jesus mean by the self-designation as bread of life? Is it possible that for many people, this phrase has lost its power either to feed our souls or to offend our minds? It simply has become meaningless language. But we accept it because it's from the Bible. And it sounds good. Well, today, this morning, I would like for us to recover the powerful implications of this language for Christ followers today. And we will do, in order to do so, we will do three things. We will look at the feeding that amazes people. We will look at the feeding that offends people. Thirdly, we will be looking at the feeding that defines true faith. The feeding that amazes people. Chapter 6 begins with a crisis. The need that Jesus' ministry encountered to feed a lot of people. Now, these people were those who were committed to hearing Jesus so much that they would rather skip lunch than miss out on hearing his teaching. Have you been there? So Jesus tells one of his disciples, Philip, where shall we buy food for all these people to eat? Now, Philip's answer shows us how great a challenge Jesus gave him. Someone's salary for eight months was not enough to buy just barely bites to feed this crowd. Now, you do the math for yourself. Think of how much you make a month or a year, and think of eight months of that needed to feed this crowd. Humanly speaking, the feeding of this crowd was wishful thinking, a human impossibility. And yet Jesus used a small lunch bag of a boy to feed a crowd of 5,000 people. Not even the lunch bag of an adult. The lunch bag of a boy. Now, as an icing on the cake, we are told that after 5,000 people ate, they were fully satisfied. And actually, there were leftovers. Twelve baskets of leftovers. 
Now, this, this touch of, of the miracle shows not simply Jesus' ability to multiply our resources. No, it shows Jesus' ability to satisfy hunger to its fullest. And the picture of the 12 baskets of leftovers points the full measure of satisfying the hunger of this crowd. Jesus has the ability to satisfy the hunger of this crowd to the point that there's 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, all of this is to point out and is preparing the way for the dialogue which Jesus will have to disclose his identity as a bread of life, the bread of heaven that gives life. John tells us another important hint in verse 4 that we should sort of see pretty clearly. Look at verse 4. We are told that this miracle took place around the time when it was the Passover feast. Now, two things about the Passover feast. First of all, the Passover feast in the life of Jews was, was something similar to the 4th of July in America. In the sense of this Passover feast celebrated the independence of the Jews from the slavery to Egypt. And every time they would celebrate this feast, they would be reminded of their independence. But unlike our independence, unlike our 4th of Julys, there are two things that the Jews had different. First of all, at this time when they were celebrating the feast of the Passover, even though it was celebrating Independence Day, they were under Roman governance. They were still enslaved. So here's a people celebrating Independence Day, but they are still enslaved. But for them, this was a reminder and a yearly procedure of asking God for the time when he will send his king to deliver them once again. That Passover, that's what it was. It was celebrating independence and looking forward for the day when God will bring again the true deliverance once again. But then there was a second way the Jews celebrated the Passover that's different from our, our 4th of July. A very specific thing about the way they were supposed to celebrate the Passover feast was that they were supposed to take a lamb, take its blood, sprinkle it, and then the, the lamb they were supposed to eat. Passover feast was a time when they were supposed to eat the very lamb which secured their protection from death. It is with this background in mind that when the crowd sees this man who is doing this miraculous event up on a mountainside in a desert somewhere, and he's feeding 5,000 people, it is no wonder for us that they are like, whoa, could this be the prophet? So what do they decide to do? They want to make him king. They want to make Jesus king. This is no surprise, because all this happened around the time of the Passover. But Jesus when he finds out that they want to make him king, he runs away. Now, we the readers of the gospel, we know that Jesus is the king of the Jews. How do we know that? In chapter 1, we were told that he is going to be the king of Israel. 
If we keep reading the gospel at the end of the gospel, at the next time the Passover of the Jews will come about, we see Jesus standing in front of Pilate. And Jesus says to this Roman governor, My kingdom is not of this world. We know that he is a king. But now at this Passover, he runs away. He withdraws from the crowd. Why? Because to accept the initiative to establish a kingdom by human effort and apart from suffering was a temptation that Jesus ran away from as hard as he could. It was a similar deal that the devil proposed to Jesus in tempting him in the desert. So Jesus goes to a solitary place to avoid this plan. And when the crowd finds him, notice what is Jesus' first point of teaching. Look to me to verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which a Son of Man will give you. Now, for Jesus to say this the next day, after he himself made the miracle of food that spoils, is rather surprising. In other words, the miracle that Jesus made the previous day is not about the food Jesus multiplied. And yet, this is exactly what these Jews were doing. Verse 26 tells us they went through the trouble to seek Jesus simply because Jesus fed them the previous day. They would cross the sea to make sure they find Jesus so that he could feed them again. Do you know people like that? Come on, we're in a Baptist church. People who are following Jesus simply because Jesus gave them free lunch. People who are following Jesus because Jesus will give them free stuff in life. Perhaps you yourself are following Jesus because, or primarily because, of the nice material things he has given you, and you hope he'll keep giving them to you. So you want to be nice to Jesus so he won't take them away from you. Friends, Jesus is saying to you too, don't aim for what he gives you in this life only. Don't let your pursuit of Christ to be motivated primarily by earthly blessings. Now, it's not wrong to ask God for earthly blessings, but ask him, Jesus says, ask him, work for the food that endures to eternal life. So the Jews the crowd asks a very penetrating question. It says, look at, look at verse 28. It's a great question. What must we do to do the works God requires? By the way, friend, this is an incredibly important question. Jesus just told them, work for food that doesn't spoil, work for food that endures for life. So these Jews say, well, okay, we're, we're, we want to take you on your word. What work must we do to do the work that God requires? A fascinating question. And then the answer Jesus gives in verse 29 is just quite surprising. The work of God is this. Believe in the one he sent. Believe in the one he sent. That's the work that God requires of us. Faith in Christ in who he claimed to be and what he claimed to do, 
This is what is required. Now notice what Jesus says. The work of God is this. Believe in him who sent, whom he sent. Friends, this means that even faith is not our work, but his work in us. Friends, our hearts are so corrupt that we cannot even believe in Christ unless God renews our hearts. We cannot make a decision for Christ without His Spirit having regenerated us already. Even though Christ, even though God calls us to believe, even though trusting in God seems such a struggle for us at times, faith is the work of God in our lives. Friend, in other words, this means that God requires of us something that He alone can give us. What God requires of us is that which He alone can produce in us. That's to show that even in the act of people's faith, we are helpless and He is ultimately sovereign. That's why when we pray for people without Christ, we pray that God would grant them faith and repentance. We ask God to do that in their lives. The the crowd asks for a sign. This is quite ironic, given the fact that Jesus just performed a miracle the previous day. I mean, can you see how, how totally without perception and discernment and understanding these Jews are? Jesus says, the work that God requires of you to do is to believe in him who sent me. And they say, well, what sign do you do? Well, yesterday was the sign, but they didn't get it. How ironic. And not only so, these Jews asked that Jesus would give him a sign just like the forefathers gave manna in the desert. Now, what is ironic about the sign that the Jews asked of Jesus is that if we read the book of Exodus and, and our brother Andy read a portion of the passage earlier in our service, the request for manna was the first sign of the grumbling of the Jews after they crossed the Red Sea. The manna, even though it was a great sign of God's provision, it was given because Israel grumbled against God and Moses. And even though they received the manna, there are going to be many other grumblings against God and against the prophet. So no wondering that Jesus reminded these Jews in verse, 20, in verse 49 that their forefathers ate the manna, yet they died. Friends, the entire generation of those Jews died without seeing the promised land because they have rebelled against the Lord. They have grumbled against the Lord time and again. And even though they ate the manna which God had provided, Their eating the manna did not entitle them to the promised land and to the rest that God envisioned for his people. So Jesus says that God now is ready to give the true bread from heaven, which truly gives life to the world. So far, the Jews are on board. Their reaction in chapter, in verse 34, is amazing. Look at verse 34. Sir, from now on, 
give us this bread. What a wonderful response. You know, if I was Jesus, I would have just said, Amen. Let's have an invitation system. We go home. Short sermon. By the way, as well. Everything would be nice. It sounds like an initial fantastic response. It's just like the response of the Samaritan woman at the well. Sir, from this day on, give me this drink. They all hear the benefits of this bread from heaven, and there's nothing for them to lose, and they're willing to take it. If we were at the evangelistic crusade, we would say, this is the decision time. The crowd is experiencing a revival. Yes, the miraculous feeding that Jesus performed caused a great amazement and a great following, and it even caused a great initial response. But that's all it was, an initial response. It was only an initial response, only a superficial understanding, only an emotional reaction to benefits that were totally misunderstood. The feeding that amazed people failed to get beyond the surface of misunderstandings. Do you tend to fall in this trap? When you heard the gospel, did you hear that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? That's true, by the way. That's true. But if that's all you heard, That is not the gospel. Something else must be heard for the gospel to be life-giving. Something else must be said and believed about Jesus, about his origins, about his work on the cross on our behalf. And then something else must be said about our response, what we must do to receive Christ in our lives if this Jesus as the bread of life is going to be giving us true bread. So now we turn to the second point, the feeding that offends people. From verse 35 to the end of the chapter, we see a pretty dramatic turn in the tone of the dialogue. At this turn, it is at, and this turn happens as soon as Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Now again, you would, you would think that since people love food, this would be a great thing to say, all right, bring it on. You would say people would have an easier time to understand this picture because it's so common. And yet it is when, at this moment when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, it is at this point that the dialogue turns around and all that nice and fuzzy and initial response starts working itself into grim grumbling and ultimately ends up rejecting Jesus. Look at verse 35 and 36. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Friends, what more promises do you need than this? But then verse 36, Jesus says, But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Whoa! It's not that people don't want the benefits. That's not the problem. The problem is they can't accept the means of getting them. Yes, Jesus can affirm that the Jews have seen him 
and yet they have seen only a miracle worker, a potential king, but not the Son of God. They have eaten the bread Jesus multiplied, but they could not accept what it pointed to. As Don Carson says, this crowd has witnessed the, re the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. Actually, it's not simply that these Jews fail to believe. Look at verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. If we look carefully in this verse and what follows, there are two key reasons that cause this, uh, these Jews to, to grumble against, God, against Jesus. First of all, they grumbled because Jesus identified himself as the bread of life that came down from heaven. Yes, these Jews of Capernaum could not believe Jesus' claim that he came from heaven as a bread of life because many of them knew his family. They had a hard time believing what Jesus said because they knew him too well. They knew too much of his family history. So they said it can't be that he came from heaven because we know he came from Joseph and Mary. The doctrine of incarnation was hard for these Jews to believe, to accept. He's just a man like others. That's the first stumbling block. And therefore, how can he come from heaven and breathe the bread, bread of heaven that gives life? But the second reason why they grumbled is given in verse 51. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Verse 52, Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? At this point, it's at this point that Jesus says very clearly the absolute necessity. It's not only to believe that he is the bread of life, but to eat his body and drink his blood. Jesus is not just calling us to believe that he is the bread of life. He's calling us to eat it. Because look at verse 53. So clear. I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now remember, this entire dialogue and miracle were happening about, around the Passover, as we mentioned. The Jews were used to the idea of eating the lamb of the Passover. They knew that the Passover meant also eating the very lamb which provided the escape from death. That was not new. What was new and radical was that now Jesus identifies himself as that which must be eaten. And not only the flesh, now the blood too. Now, if any Jew who knew his Old Testament knew that God had pro prohibited the Jews under any circumstance to drink blood, that God had prohibited the Jews to eat any flesh that still had blood in it. So for them to hear this Jesus say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. This is just radical. This is just against everything they have heard in the Old Testament. 
That was because the Jews, these Jews, just like with Nicodemus, they understood the words of Jesus to be in a purely materialistic, naturalistic way. Just like with Nicodemus, when Jesus was talking to him about the need for a new birth, and Nicodemus totally misunderstood it because it, he took it for the material, literalistic uh, meaning, now these Jews do the same thing. They say, this is too much. This is, how could somebody claim of us to do this? Now, we could be sympathetic for the Jews to, for not understanding this, right? Because the Jews had such a reaction against eating and drinking blood. But friends, look back with me to verse 27. Remember what was the first thing that Jesus told these Jews when they finally found him again? Verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Friends, that should have been the major clue to these Jews that Jesus was talking to them about food which was real, but not materialistic. It was food that was real, but not the kind of food that spoils. Later on in verse 63, Jesus says, The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. But they didn't pay attention to the meaning of Jesus' words. They preferred to take the words of Jesus out of context and hear what they wanted to hear. They could neither accept the claim that Jesus came from heaven as a bread of life, nor could they accept the claim that actually they had to eat this bread if they're going to receive eternal life. So they, they, they were willing to get the, the benefits. They liked the benefits. Give us this bread. But as soon as they find out what it means, that this bread was actually the sacrifice of our Lord, the body given, the blood shed, and this was not just an object that we had to believe in, external to us, but it, they were elements that we had to take in for us. That's just too radical for them. So, they could neither accept the claims of who Jesus was and what he claimed to come from and what he claimed to be. Do you know people who like the idea of going to heaven, but they like to choose their own way of going there? I was talking to somebody this past week at a, at a Randall's. It was late at night, 11 o'clock at, at night, um, and uh, he, was, he and I were the only ones in the store, so our conversation got to be about heaven, something he men mentioned a comment about heaven. Um, and I've asked him about he, if he thinks he's going to go there, and he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, what gives you the confidence? I said, I'm a good man. I said, really? Yeah, I haven't done anything bad. I said, really? Well, do you know you're, the Bible tells us you, we're all evil. I said, oh, I the Bible, that's written by men. I don't believe that. I said, so, so what, what about Jesus? Do you know about Jesus? Oh, yeah, I know about Jesus. He died for me. I said, oh, great. Um, so why did he die for you? Well, he, he just died for me. I said, but I'll tell you why he died for me, for you, for us, because we're bad, bad people. Oh, no, that's not true. Jesus just died for me. But, and our conversation went on and on for, for a few other things. But here's a man who, who wants to go to heaven. He expects to go to heaven. He likes the benefits of going to heaven. But he will not put up. He will not understand or not receive the means of going there. Friends, it's not enough 
to be excited and amazed by the benefits of the gospel. We must understand it and accept it and believe it and take it in. The feeding that amazed people the previous day, the physical feeding that was actually pointing to true feeding that offended the same people the next day. What a powerful reminder, dear friends, of that the superficial decisions for Christ were not highly valued by Jesus. I love what F.F. Bruce says, what they wanted, he would not give them. What he offered, they would not receive. If we try to save the gospel by downplaying the hard truths of who Jesus was and what he requires of us, we're not saving the gospel. We are selling the gospel away. Friends, the gospel has the potential to offend everyone and every one of those who hear it. And while we should never aim to offend someone with the gospel, we can never hide away the offensive scandal of the cross and what it requires of us. So the, the feeding that, am, that amazes people, the feeding that offends people, finally the feeding that defines true faith. The radical point of chapter 6 is that the feeding that became offensive to the Jews is what defines our faith in Christ. See, people don't have a problem believing in Jesus or in God or in heaven at a very superficial level. But when Christ defines for us what it means to believe in him, it is at that time that we see the kind of faith that people really have. Look with me at the two verses, verse 54 and verse 40. Verse 54 says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, if we, if we read verse 40, notice how similar verse 40 is with verse 54. For my, father will, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do you hear how similar these verses are? The structure of the verse is very, very similar. It's only the first half that's changed. He who looks to the Son and believes in Him, and he who eats of the flesh and drinks His blood. Both of these give the same benefit. They will have eternal life. Which means that both of these are similar. They're synonyms. They define each other. So the faith that Jesus calls us to have in him is not the kind of superficial faith that keeps Jesus at a distance from our lives. It is rather the kind of faith that takes Jesus in. And the best illustration to give that to us is for Jesus to say, eat me up. Take me in. We, we, we use this when we say we, 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 dev, we devour a book, right? We're all over it. It's becoming part of us, of who we are. That's the point of why Jesus is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It is to say that's the meaning of believing on Christ and no other. That's why Jesus can say, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This is the feeding that defines faith. Why do I bring this up and emphasize this? It should be no surprise to us that the symbol of Christ's death for us and our ongoing belief in Christ's death for us is symbolized through the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper as we did last week, we don't just remember 
the death of Jesus out there. We remember the death of Jesus for us on our behalf. And the way we show that the death of Jesus is for our behalf is by actually taking the elements in and we eat them. The very act of eating is significant. Not that the blood of Jesus or the, or the body of Jesus is in those elements, like our, our Roman Catholic friends would say. It's, it's, it's a remembrance. It's, it's a symbol that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and the fact that we have taken that in for us. That defines our faith. That's why before we take the supper, we have a time of examining ourselves. We take that time very seriously. It's because we, we literally say this. Is the faith we professed in Christ continuing to produce in us a kind of life in which Christ, it's clearly that Christ is in us, not outside of us? Is the faith we profess in Christ producing in us a life under the Lordship of Christ? Not that we don't sin, we all sin, but are there any sins that we continue to stay in actively, aware of, consciously, and not repenting of them? That's what we do when we examine ourselves. Why? Because every time we take that cup or we eat that bread, we're literally symbolically, once again, appropriating Christ's sacrifice for us. He's part of us. So why would we hold on to sins deliberately, willingly, aware with awareness, and at the same time take that in as a symbol that Christ lives in us? Those two things don't match. A feeding that gives life is a feeding on Christ's sacrifice for us. That's the bread of life. That's why when Jesus says, I am the bread of life that brings life from heaven, it is a symbolic way of Jesus saying, I am the one who's going to give you life. It's not enough just to believe in me superficially. It's not enough just to be aware of me and acknowledge my presence. Unless I am in you, unless you eat me, unless you drink me, you will have no part of the eternal life I came to bring. Friends, that's why the feeding that gives life in John chapter 6 is a feeding that actually defines our faith. Let me ask you this morning, you who claim to be a follower of Christ, you who claim to believe in Jesus, is your faith in Jesus characterized by you feeding on Christ? Do you think of your faith in Jesus as you feeding on Christ? Because our walk with Jesus is not just a relationship, it's a feast. And if it's a feast, God is inviting us to eat the provision that he has given for us, the bread of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.